On the behalf of Chest, I'd like to welcome you to the August 2016 podcast. I'm Kyle Hogarth from the University of Chicago, editor of the podcast section. Thank you for joining us today for what's going to be another terrific conversation. My first guest is Dr. Lisa Meyer, professor of medicine from the Division of Environmental and Occupational Health Sciences at National Jewish Health in Denver, Colorado. She's here to talk about her article, Association Between Occupational Exposures and Sarcoidosis, an analysis from death certificates in the United States from 1988 through 1999. Lisa, thanks for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having us. And then also on the phone with us is Dr. Elliot Krauser, Professor of Medicine from the Davis Heart and Lung Institute at The Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. He's going to be discussing his accompanying editorial, Severe Sarcoidosis Phenotypes, an Occupational Hazard. Elliot, thanks for joining us. Well, happy to be here, and I was happy to review this great article. Right, so let's, so speaking of this great article, um, let's, why don't we, you know, for some of our listeners who maybe not have, uh, have, you know, had the opportunity to read it yet, um, Lisa, can you, can you give us some summaries and give us some of the highlights, and then obviously we'll, we'll dig deep and we'll start to chew this over. Sure. So, um, first of all, m- most of us uh, in the sarcoidosis world uh, really believe that sarcoidosis is a combination of genetic risk and expo- in a, with an exposure-inducing antigen. Um, and the issue, as most of uh, our listeners probably know, is we don't know what causes uh, sarcoidosis. And so we had the opportunity to look at um, a number of thousands of, of deaths attributable um, to sarcoidosis in a large data set um, from 25 states over a period of 11 years, encompassing 7 million um, total deaths. And uh, in these 25 states, they had actually indicated the occupation that the person who had died um, had had. So we could link sarcoidosis deaths and occupation and see if there was a greater risk of death from sarcoidosis with certain occupations. And presumably there were demographics there as well. Correct. So what we, um, what we had and what we know, the, the data set that, sorry, that we used was the same one that was published in another article um, looking at sarcoidosis mortality. And we already know from this data, from this previous publication as well as from um, other articles, that blacks and women tend to have a greater mortality um, risk in sarcoidosis. And so we wanted to include those um, variables, and we did have that information um, and uh, wanted to look specifically at differences that we might find in females versus men and in blacks versus white, and then even in black women versus white um, versus uh, white women and black and white men uh, for different um, occupations that they had had. And um, a couple of, first of all, we did, one of the things we did not do was look at every occupation. We really chose to focus on occupations that had been associated and exposures that had been associated with sarcoidosis in other studies. Uh, just because if we tried to take every possible occupation, then we were worried we'd have too many false positives. Right. And so we really took a, a finite number of potential exposures and looked at the mortality odds ratio for these exposures um, in sarcoidosis um, decedents. And we looked at two types of sarcoidosis decedents, those that were where sarcoidosis was listed as any cause, whether it was the first to the fifth cause of death versus those where the, the primary cause 
or we called it the, the um, underlying cause of death, UCD, was um, sarcoidosis. So that would have been the first listing. And then we looked at those two outcomes. Um, and we found some really interesting differences um, between women and men, and again, blacks and whites, finding that black women had the highest risk. We also found that any sarcoidosis individual who had an exposure had a greater risk of mortality or mortality odds ratio um, than, than people who didn't have any exposures. But specifically with women, we found that um, working um, teaching in bank and administrative jobs were higher risks, where men, it tended to be metalwork, teaching, and military. Um, but then again, we found some differences between um, uh, blacks and whites, where um, blacks had much higher risks than, and in some whites, we didn't even find a significant association in these areas. So, so Ellie, what do you, what do you think? I, you know, as I was reading Lisa's paper, one of the things that first struck me is I was actually, as I was going through the data, I was actually quite anxious to get to the discussion section because I wanted to chew on this some more and get her thoughts on it. Um, I was struck by, especially as you described there, Lisa, in women, you know, I, when I think occupational exposure, I, I suppose, you know, as a non-occupational pulmonologist, I, I don't, I think, you know, I, I think, you know, uh, industrial and so forth. I don't think of someone sitting in a bank or sitting in a cubicle as an, as an exposure, and yet, you know, you found a link there. Elliot, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think there are two two possibilities when you talk about these occupations, and that's what I brought up in my and and, and actually, uh, Dr. Meyer also mentioned this in in her discussion. Uh, it could be a direct effect of the exposure. Uh, you know, these these type of uh, jobs all are similar, as pointed out in the discussion section of the, the of the manuscript. That these are all similar in that people are in the banking um, and administrative uh, teaching, et cetera, they, they're directly in, engaging one another, you know, hands right. touching hands and, and, and doorknobs and, you know, getting uh, exposure to all kinds of infectious antigens and, and other p potential exposures. But it's also interesting to, to consider, and, again, women are more and are, are more um, – uh, are more likely to die of sarcoidosis than men in this study. It's interesting what, what might be different other than genetics uh, that would differentiate these occupations and these uh, and gender um, uh, exposures. And it's interesting that, you know, women tend to use more makeup and they tend to uh, use sprays and all kinds of things. I'm, I'm in the bathroom when these things happen. I try to get out because I'm starting to cough <laughs> when, when they're doing it. So, you know, it's just interesting to consider that there might be other Factors related to you know to the lifestyle of these individuals that may not be directly associated with that exposure. In other words, what you're saying is, if someone in that industry, you know, if you're if you're sort of the public face of an institution, you probably have done that face up, um, as opposed yeah. to something else where your general appearance is maybe not as important. Uh, is so. And I think, Lisa, you stress this that this is obviously we're talking about associations here, not necessarily causality. But it, it's still interesting to, to think about it, and if possible, I'd love for you to expand when you talked about, you know, where we classically see sarcoid manifestations, uh, you know, sort of ocular cutaneous versus pulmonary lymphatic and arguing whether or not, you know, what type of these occupations, how they're getting exposed and what they're being exposed to. Yeah. 
So it's um, it's really interesting that again, if you, as Elliot was alluding to, our um, first thought was that the the women were being potentially exposed, maybe to person to person contact, and maybe this was an infectious. Um, antigen of some sort or infectious antigens, as most of us would think, um, and, and that, uh, or again, an antigen that somehow is being spread from person to person with these exposures, um, and, and yet we know that women are at increased risk for, if you will, mucous membrane involvement, right, skin and, and eyes, where again, if, if you're touching something um, and then you touch your skin, you touch your eyes, um, whereas uh, the pulmonary and um, cardiovascular, which have been somewhat increased in men, um, are usually, when we think about, for example, air pollution, right? We know that uh, people who are exposed to air pollution can get both pulmonary and cardiovascular um, risks from, from that particulate. So interesting that men tend to have been really in more of um, the the more classical industrial exposures where you could inhale particles and maybe that's why um, they tend to have a little higher rate of, for example, cardiovascular involvement with sarcoidosis. So, you know, there's, there's an issue not only on finding associations in the study with sarcoidosis overall, but potentially in a more severe phenotype, that is people that die from it, um, right. as well as maybe we're even starting to see some sub-phenotypes based on the male and female um, or black versus white um, risks in differential for organ involvement. Ellie, what do you think? I'm sorry, go ahead, Lisa. No, I just said those are are, um, hypotheses that we laid out in our our discussion, but certainly would require additional um, evaluation. I, yeah, I think that's really fascinating. And nobody's really thought of, of sarcoidosis in this way. They've been trying to find a unifying hypothesis, like what one antigen could cause all these disease, you know, the disease manifestations, or what class of antigens. And and I think, you know, these exposures may not be the driving force. They may not be the primary antigen that caused sarcoidosis, but they might be disease modifying in that it's known that, you know, once you get the inflammation going, if you have a second exposure that may not be directly related to the, you know, the antigen that caused the granulomas to form, but if you add another inflammatory um, molecule to the milieu, you you can rev up that granulomatous response. And so I think I wonder how many of these exposures are, are, are not the primary cause, but might be actually just turning up the the volume on on the inflammation. Yeah. That's a really well, interesting thought because again, there's there have been hypotheses that sarcoidosis may be a multi-hit, you know, or multi-exposure um, disease. Well, and then also let's not forget intensity and duration because then we start to look at the 9/11 firefighter first responder studies. Correct. Whereas you know, many of us, when we think about an antigenic exposure, and we think of sarcoidosis being TH1, you need more than one exposure um, to cause some of these types of responses, whether it's within the lungs or not. And here you have this massive exposure for 9-11. And even before that, we knew that firefighters were at increased risk, and yet we did not find that in this study. And that's another one where we... Whether we, where we hypothesized or speculated that maybe it is, again, as you're articulating, Kyle, that it's because um, the firefighters maybe 
haven't either we weren't able to pick out the people that had the really bad exposures or maybe they don't have a severe disease. Um, and, and actually, if you look at um, some of the work that David Prezant had published about firefighters in, your, in this journal um, almost 20 years ago, those people tended to have pretty mild disease. So, right. you know, maybe, well, again, that, some of Well, that's the key, because you guys would look at yep. mortality. You know, you look exactly. at mortality. Right. Right. And I think uh, uh, that there could be a selection bias. As, again, this was pointed out in the paper, and I think it's true, that there could be a selection bias. Of course, you're more likely to be diagnosed with the disease if you have a bad form of it. And, um, and, and, and history says there was actually a study in Cuyahoga County. Uh, it was a, a series of over 9,000 autopsies in which they determined that the prevalence of sarcoidosis was actually – Ten times greater than they than was listed by death certificates in Ohio. So they, the conclusion was that we, we missed ninety percent of the cases during the life of the individual, and and those would probably be the more mild forms of the disease that that um, never get onto a death certificate uh, of, of any sort. Uh, right. So this is a selection. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say, in that the firefighters go along with that, the, um, because the FDNY ones where this has been, uh, sarcoidosis has been most strongly associated, they have um, chest x-ray um, surveillance right. that they're undergoing, and not every fire department does that. Right, so they're going to pick the, the incidental finding of lymphadenopathy so, sort of uh, story. Correct. So but again, that's not, as we know, that's, that's going to likely be a milder form. Yep, and that goes along with Elliot. Your point too that that we probably are um, missing those, but for either the autopsy um, study in, that you're quoting or the radiographic um, uh, surveillance uh, that has been done for the firefighters, as well as we know when that was done back in the you know, 60s um, in the Scandinavian countries. Again, they found much higher rates too. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that when we were talking earlier, we talked about you know admin and bank as, as you know, titles that was associated with a sarcoid mortality risk that seemed sort of at first, you know, at first glance, like, really? And But then, as you talk about, you know, the access database, you know, so in a, a previous large study looking at sarcoid demonstrated higher rates of sarcoid in middle and high school teachers, which would, again, at least lend some more circumstantial evidence to this discussion of a, you know, an exposure, you know, a I'm, I'm interacting constantly with with you know a room full of students, etc., or in a bank, room full of customers uh, who are you know there's there's a lot of personal there's touch there's handshakes there's et cetera, you know etc. and a potential transmission of a vector. Correct, and and that's where again we try to use um, studies like the Access one to help us code some of these occupational um, codes into exposures, uh, and we had an industrial hygienist who helped us, so that was really um, uh, another I think positive part about our study, um, similar to Access, where uh, again the the occupational pieces were done here at National Jewish with the help of an industrial hygienist, really being able to say, well, this exposure may or this occupation may be more likely to have this type of exposure or be classified into this group. But they they do go together, and that's where also child care work also had been found um, in access as associated. Now, now, what about the smoking findings? Let's talk about smoking. So, yeah, we didn't. We were not able to look at um, smoking, which is the um, you know the biggest 
um, most well-studied protective uh, exposure for sarcoidosis um, in for example, in the ACCESS study, it was the biggest um, uh, and strongest uh, um, effect, um, and it was protective. And that's actually been found not only in um, the ACCESS study, but in many other sarcoidosis studies, as well as in studies of similar granulomatous diseases or non-infectious granulomatous diseases. So in like H like HP. HP, beryllium disease, and even in animal models of um, HP. And so that's something that we don't know how that might have impacted um, some of these exposures. If you think about, let's look at some of the, um, you know, for example, uh, banking and administrative. Well, prior to the 1990s, people were allowed to smoke in their workplaces. So could it have been a confounder for some of these more highly associated um, exposures from from an occupational standpoint, that's possible. Um, Most people within, for example, uh, depending on the, but most industrial settings, usually they don't like people smoking in the workplace there as much as, for example, teachers might have. Right. I I wonder, could you have, uh, are you able to tease out on the death certificates if there was Things like emphysema or COPD, you know, which would imply a smoking history. Did you see anything in, you know, in recognizing that you're taking yeah. a leap there? <laughs> but well, and, and that's a great question, and it's not one that we looked at. And, and as a, um, a clinician who takes care of these people, I can tell you that a lot of times, folks that have um, sarcoidosis are given a lot of other diagnoses that I'm not Good really. Point sure that they have, such as asthma or COPD, because they do get, you know, people forget sarcoidosis isn't just a restrictive lung disease. It causes obstructive lung disease. And so that's not something that that we thought we could really look at in a meaningful way. No, and that's a good point. Things tend to never leave the problem list of the past medical history once applied, right? (laughs) Yeah. So... (laughs) Um, What are both of your thoughts on why we saw or why there's this higher death rate amongst women, and particularly African-American women? I mean, what just From an etiology-wise, or just, you know, do we think it's just the genetics of this disease, or it just, or just you know, throw out some thoughts and hypotheses? Because I'm just curious. I think there are both issues of genetics, and I think, again, um, we worry potentially about exposures, but also the other piece that... Um, we skirted about, but we didn't talk about as much as access to health care and disparities. Uh-huh. There are a number of studies that suggest that by the time, um, especially black women, but women and blacks are diagnosed, the disease tends to be more advanced. Um, and so, again, you wonder, have we missed the the window where we could have intervened and maybe with treatment helped uh, either uh, make the disease less progressive or um, where there really is no response to treatment. Um, those the, the issues of the disparities, certainly for, for blacks, I think, is a huge issue in access to health care. Yeah, Elliot, what do you think? What are some thoughts? Well, I, I don't know enough about the the effects of estrogen on on the immune system, but there are people that do research on that. So I, I believe there there could be a, a fundamental difference between men and women in terms of their immune responses. But uh, I can't say that I would really be able to tie those into the uh, pathogenesis of sarcoidosis. There's certainly 
behavioral and, um, you know, um, uh, lifestyle factors that could be playing a role, as we talked about before. Uh, but I, I think it's fascinating, and uh, it's such a huge effect uh, in sarcoidosis. It, it, it really becomes uh, something of, of quite a great deal of interest, and uh, I'm sure it would be. Um, it's also true of other autoimmune disease. Of auto, I wouldn't call sarcoidosis autoimmune, but the autoimmune diseases are also uh, affected by gender as well. So it's an interesting question that. I can't. I don't pretend to know the answer to, but uh, it's certainly a, a very large factor. Yeah. Well, and it is uh, again, Kyle. Just as uh, to point out for our listeners, we had about the same number of total decedents in the group of men and women. There were about 3.5 million in each group. Yet, it was almost twice as many um, women as as men. So, you know, there's clearly. Um, something different in, in that regard. And, and similarly, um, when you look at the, the blacks and the percent of the American population, regardless of where you know, the, what the 25 states were, um, there were, again, an overrepresented um, number of individuals with sarcoidosis um, that had died in that group, too. And so I think, Elliot, your point about estrogen and women and what we're finding um, that there probably are differences in immune system that may be even related to issues of of being able to not reject, if you will, um, a baby when um, mm-hmm. you know women are pregnant or making them uh, more likely to develop some of these uh, immune mediated diseases and and potentially more severe ones. Does does your data, Lisa, in your in your clinical practice? I mean, you have a large clinical practice focused on sarcoid do you, do you, and others, but um, other things. But does it, does your data jive with just your personal experience? You know, like when you saw when you when you fi- finished your analysis and were putting it together, did you go, you know, that that is what I see. You know, I'm just kind of curious as this goes hand in hand with you know if you yeah. look back at your clinical experience so far. I think it, it it does to some degree in the sense that you know we all we um, always are looking for exposures because again my within my group were occupational pulmonologists or right. pulmonologists with interest in interest in um, exposures and and I have to say I think part of it is we're looking for the HP cases we're clearly looking for you know the infections the beryllium disease etc um, and. Right. And so we do see some of these kind of overlaps. Uh, for example, we have a cluster of cases of sarcoidosis that we cannot prove are beryllium disease, yet they're in people who are doing metal machining. And so it really makes us worry that we're missing, you know, those people. Right. And then, But yet a lot of the women don't have what I would say a real industrial job. So I, I do think it does. And um, to that point, we're... Actually, we've been trying to take a questionnaire that we've used for the NHLBI um, uh, study uh, genomic research in alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency and sarcoidosis that was based right. off of the ACCESS study in our, in, our, um, in our clinical cohort to see, you know, what else can we glean. But I, I have to say, I will want to continue to focus on some of the exposures um, as an, more a priori um, or higher uh, risk um, that we found in this study. Otherwise, again, we're going to continue to have a lot of these hypothesis-generating studies without really being able to delve as much into 
um, the exposures, but and to look at the um, phenotypes too. So let me ask you both another question. So you know this this podcast and these articles are available on the internet and. Not necessarily, and this podcast is a free download, so non-physicians can listen to this. So I'm an African-American female with sarcoidosis that's already giving me some level of restricted lung disease, and I work in a bank. What should I do? <laughs> <laughs> so I think the issue at this point is we can't say what the specific exposure is. So I'm going to tell that person that in general people who work are healthier and right. obviously – Working also at this in this day and age is still tied to healthcare insurance, um, right. and that's very important for people with sarcoidosis. So, unless there are specific exposures that we're worried about um, that are making uh, them have a flare of their disease or worsening of their disease, I think right now we don't know exactly what it is that's within the banking that may be associated but not causative, and really working is going to be their best to keep themselves healthy. And I think that's the key, right? Not causative. I mean, the greatest exactly. incentive, but... Exactly. Do we have any good animal models? Huh. <laughs> that's a no. <laughs> that is a no. We do not yet. It's something that um, I know Elliot and uh, I, I think agrees with me on this. We, we need an animal model, and that would be where it would be absolutely wonderful to take... Uh, you know, for example, um, something that we might think of what would be associated. For example, let's go back to an easy one. Pesticides were found associated with sarcoidosis in the access study. Well, you could, if you had an animal model, you could take pesticides and see if you could induce uh, a granulomatous response. Um, and that would be something that I think would be really, you know, interesting if we could continue to focus what, what are different aspects. Um, you could take the dust, for example, from the World Trade Center and see if you could induce um, also and what aspects of it are inducing it and what aren't. And if you blocked gene A, B, or C, could you right. um, block that response? So that's where we'd love to see studies going in the future, or I would. I agree. And I think one of the other challenges is I think there, we believe there might be different genotypes that, that cause different variants of sarcoidosis. So it's not only just the exposure, yeah. um, but it also is the, the person's genotype. And which one of those do you model? Do you want to model the most extreme sick kind of sarcoidosis or, you know, so I think there would have to be different models for, for the different, uh, you know, g genotypes that are represented in humans. And that, so that leads to one model probably wouldn't do the trick, in my opinion. Yeah. So it, it, it is complicated, and, it, and animals don't get sarcoidosis uh, reliably, uh, particularly rodents, the ones that we can gen genetically modify. They can run around in all kinds of uh, antigen-rich uh, uh, environments, and they do just fine. Yeah. yeah. No, it strikes me. I mean, the, the inherent problem too. I mean, even in human studies, is is and arguably, I think what what you all would agree with me, and I think the data also leads to, is that you know every time I say the word sarcoid, I already feel pretty stupid, given that it, you know it's a disease that I do a lot of hand waving whenever I talk to a patient about it, and I you know kind of view it as a diagnosis of exclusion. And then on top of that, how we specifically phenotype a patient. You know, we call it all sarcoid, but it, sure, your gut sure makes you think that you've got a completely different disease on someone who's kind of an ocular cutaneous versus a pulmonary cardiac, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but boy, that sure feels right, doesn't it? 
Yeah, no, that's why some people have even called it the, you know, sarcoidosis instead of just right, sarcoidosis. Right. Because I think you're right, and that's um, another issue that, again, I think if we were better and more consistent about how we phenotype and how we think about these patients, um, that's where, for example, with a study like this, gosh, wouldn't it have been nice if we'd had a better idea exactly what organs were involved? Because maybe we could have, you know, gotten a little bit finer in our um, in our associations even and led us to to start to refine our approach in a bigger um, population of patients um, at a number of, you know, while people are still alive and we can get more information from them. So, but I think you're right, Kyle. It's a, there. This is definitely um, a multitude of diseases under the rubric of one name. Right. And I, I'll bring up one other point that, that, you know, I kind of just thought of that I didn't include in my in my editorial, but I think it could apply, is that some of these occupations are are fraught with varying degrees of stress, you know, emotional or, or you know, confrontational. A lot of interactions with people involve some stress. And, and so I, I think uh, stress also has been known to be a rheostat for inflammation, uh, greater stress being more pro-inflammatory and, and, and vice versa. So I do think that there could be yet another layer of, of, of complexity that that uh, relates to the stress of the of the that is inherent in the in the occupation they're being exposed to. I don't know what you feel about that, Lisa, but that was kind of I've always felt that that some of the, my patients flare up when they're under particularly stressful circumstances. Yeah, well, and there's a whole um, study um, in the occupational world looking at um, work stress, and actually, uh, you know, blue-collar workers tend to have pretty significant stress if they have to get so many widgets out, but one of the biggest groups are what we call the pink-collar workers, have actually greater stress because they have very little control over it. And where would we think that our, our groups like our banking and our administrative people would fall into? Well, they many of them would probably be in that pink-collar group. So it's actually a really, you know, a good point that, again, getting back to the lifestyle issues that we couldn't address in this study. And at the other extreme, I'm looking at fire, lumber, mail, bird. I don't know what bird people do, but it seems like those might be less stressful, right? Okay. I mean, and actually, you're kind of working it off, working off the stress most of the time as a lumber person or a firefighter, et cetera. Yeah, and the birds are animal caretakers. Mm -hmm. uh, that's always with sarcoid, right? A thousand more questions. Yeah. <laughs> what? What haven't we've been talking for a little bit? What what haven't we talked about? What have what have we missed? So one of the issues I think that's interesting in our study that we found that's not been found in some other studies is we found that silica workers. Oh yeah, let's talk about silica. Silica yeah. was was protective that they were less likely um, uh, to to have their have sarcoidosis if they worked um, in in silica. Um, and uh, it, other studies have actually found that. Silica can be an increased risk for sarcoidosis, um, and others have postulated that exposures um, that have been related to, um, you know, other work types have been associated with actually exposure to silica. So, so why did we find this protective effect? And um, there may be a couple of reasons. One of the simple ones that I can tell you that we see in our clinic here, since we see you know folks who have um, 
silicosis is oftentimes that's a diagnosis that's made based on a chest radiographic findings. And the chest radiographic findings can look pretty similar to sarcoidosis. You can have a progressive massive fibrosis and silicosis where you get what we call conglomerate masses in sarcoidosis where you get we think these granulomas and sarcoidosis are um, coming together and um, silicotic nodules and silicosis. So sarcoidosis, we usually require biopsy. Silicosis, we don't. So it could be as simple as somebody who's says, I've worked in an industry with silica exposures, is just given the diagnosis of silicosis. So that could be why it's protective. Um, and it could be just a total issue of misclassification. Um, right. Or... Well, um, and of course, the diagnosis of silicosis has legal and financial implications as well. Right. And so I can tell you there's sometimes people who... Um, I, I know some of my, my colleagues have a couple, some patients that have both because, again, um, you know, they probably do have silicosis, but, or if they don't, they, again, they can get their health care covered for that, but underlying it, we're worried about the sarcoidosis. So you're right that right. there's also a reason physicians may want to provide that diagnosis. Um, but then there's also the issue of could there be an actual protective effect, and I don't know, Elliot, if you want to talk about that a little bit from an immunologic standpoint. Right, you allude to that in your editorial, uh, Elliot. Yeah, I think you know the, the silicosis, in contrast to sarcoidosis, ultimately ends up being becoming more of a fibrotic disease. And, and if you look at the balance between Th1 kind of immune responses, which would favor granuloma formation and, and acute inflammation, the opposing force on that would be more of a Th2 or regulatory phenotype, and that tends to go drift towards more of a of a fibrotic phenotype, which uh, ultimately. Uh, sometimes that happens in sarcoidosis in the late stages, but it also happens in silicosis. So that, perhaps that could be, you know, a, a, an anti-inflammatory effect uh, rendered by the exposure to, to silica. But I was just going to uh, say as we were talking about all this and, and point out that this is really the first foray into this. Nobody's really looked at what what kills people with sarcoidosis? There's a lot of people that, that get sarcoidosis and they're not that sick from it. But what really is most interesting is what, what, what ultimately makes them so sick, makes a subgroup of them very sick and disabled for you know, many years and ultimately many of them die of it. That, that is the group we're most interested in treating and learning more about. And this is really the first study to think about that as, as it relates to uh, occupational exposures. And think about it. This is a very this is a retrospective analysis. This isn't even as deeply detailed as you would get from the electronic medical record. But it's a huge study, and it shows some really interesting trends, uh, even from that high altitude. So a, a more nuanced a registry of these kind of patients with a lot more detail would really be informative. I think. Yeah, I agree with you. And we do have the ability now with the you know, electronic health records, the um, some of the CTRC's um, ability to connect some of the and the NIH to connect clinical data from different registries together to to think about um, looking at these issues more prospectively. I'm I'm also struck by that if you know if I'm somebody in practice and you know have however many sarcoid patients under my care and um, I've got a X amount of patients who are African American females and have definitively not normal pulmonary function tests that maybe I should have a lower threshold for a referral to a sarcoid center of excellence, um, just given, obviously, the, 
the strong mortality data that, that your study points out. Yeah. No, I think that that is also important and something that um, and many of us who are taking care of these patients would like to see them sooner um, than later. And unfortunately, I think uh, most of us can share a story of someone being sent to us and before we get a chance to see them, either they're um, so sick that they can't make the trip or they've even passed away. And I had a recent um, African-American woman that that happened to. I've had those too. Always had them. Well, guys, this was this was great, and 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 congratulations on a on a fantastic article, and and I've really enjoyed this conversation. Well, thank you for uh, for well giving us the opportunity to talk about it and and to um, share with um, all of our readers and listeners. Thank you very Thanks. much. Thanks again, guys. Have a great evening. Appreciate it. Okay. Thanks.